And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high atop the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Strahan on the Coot Street Podcast! Yes, okay, that's the longest one yet. I'm proud of you. <laughs> I'm glad well, your lungs are still holding up. I, I was exercising. I've been exercising, Gary. As you know, I went out and had a five-kilometer walk this morning. Uh, so, yes, the lungs are in reasonable shape, all things considered having survived the harrowing sort of New Year period and moving into the end of January. How are you? Oh, we're doing well here. I mean, we, we had big news today. because I, I, I have to say this because everyone thinks Chicago is, is, is brutal during the winter. And it has been cold. But today we had our first one-inch snowfall in 330 days. That's <laughs> yeah. 11 solid months without snow. Mm-hmm. And it was... It was lovely, actually. It was lovely to be out and, and, and walking in a small amount of snow, but um, it's nothing like the weather you have there. But nevertheless, it's been a pleasant uh, holiday season, which is all over. I bought the last grandkid, the last Hanukkah Christmas gift day before yesterday. That's and, a bit late, Gary. Well, he's he's in college. He was in from out of town, and <laughs> it was just a matter of, so I started I started giving out gifts on December thirteenth or something. <laughs> so it was yeah a solid month of that. So it's, so it's a, a real season for you then. It's a complete season. It begins sometime before Hanukkah and ends sometime before all the kids are back in school. Okay. And was it a good holiday season? I thought it was a lovely holiday season. Good. Um, and I'm looking forward to the next one. The only problem is there's a year to go. <laughs> oh, I'm sure there will be things that the science fiction field throws up to keep us busy between now and then. I was going to say the, exactly the same thing. That there, my life is dividing into two seasons, holiday season and convention season. Pretty much. And, you know, I know that if I lived in the United States that I would live convention season much more aggressively than I can. I mean, uh, our first convention here of the year, I guess, is in April mm-hmm. when... Uh, SwanCon is on. Uh, interestingly, this year, and it's a bit unusual, the national convention is, is only two weeks after that in Canberra. So I know a lot of people are going to go to Canberra instead, and I'm hoping to go because uh, mm-hmm. Nalo Hopkinson is the uh, the guest of honor. Oh, that'll be lovely. It should be. Uh, and in fact, I need to uh, I need to talk about something that you've already read, Gary, because... It's a lovely... No- I, 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 yeah, I'm very fond of uh, her new novel. Sister Mine? We should name the book. It's Sister Mine, isn't it, by Nala Hopkinson? Sister Mine is Nala Hopkinson's new novel, which she had been discussing and tweeting and so forth about under the title Donkey, I believe. Yes. In fact, I think maybe we should get her on here because, assuming that I can arrange flights and and, and everything else that needs to be arranged, particularly for Marianne as well, because Mm -hmm. uh, my dear wife Marianne may well come with me this time, I am supposed to do the guest of honor with Nalo. Uh, really? Do, do, the, do the interview, yeah. And so I need to read uh, Sister Mine and a few other things before that, that time comes. And it occurs to me that uh, a nice warm-up might be to, to do a podcast. Either that or maybe record the interview as a podcast. I don't know. We should certainly try to do something. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's the first, well, really, not counting last year's uh, The Chaos, which was her first YA novel, which yeah. was a lot of fun. This is really her first major adult novels since um, The New Moon's Arms, which I believe was five years ago. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, she, she was unwell for a period of time. She was unwell. She was her, her, her living circumstances were far less than ideal for a long period of time. She's very open about this, even in the acknowledgments to her book. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, but, she, but, but she's settled down in a way uh, that I think has given her a chance to, uh, to catch up on writing. And this is... I. I don't know how much I should talk about the book. I'll be reviewing it for Locus, but it's. I think it's what I think it's what people. It's what people have been hoping for. I mean, Nalo is a very interesting, very uh, um, complex writer, but she also likes to have fun, and yeah. there's a bit of both going on in this novel. Well, I mean, I've read not all of her books, but I've read several of them, uh, and she's always been. I mean, she's a very interesting short story writer. She was a quite a, a uh, she's complex and, and interesting uh, editor because she's edited three anthologies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's nice to see her back with with major new uh, novels and short stories coming out. Uh, so I'm really 
eager to see Sister Mine. Because it's I it think sounds one of the like, other things. It sounds like her best heir to Brown Girl in the Ring. Um, it's it's interesting because it is more like Brown Girl in the Ring than it is certainly like the New Moon's Arms. Mm -hmm. But it also shows, and I don't think she'd mind my saying this, that she's learned a lot about uh, plotting and character and family relationships and how to depict those since Brown Girl in the Ring. Well, I, I think she'd probably, and putting words in anyone's mouth, let alone Nalo's, is a bad idea. But uh, after you know, 15 years of uh, writing, because uh, it's been 15 years since Brown Girl in the Ring, you would hope you were better, wouldn't you? I think so. And I think you can see that progress in all of her novels. I think that there, there are some like the Salt Roads that are just yeah. striking off into new territory, yeah, writing yeah, yeah. kind of historical epics. But um, I remember I, I first heard about Brown Girl in the Ring. I, th these, are the, these are the novels that you remember as a reviewer because novels by people you've never heard of. Um, and Brown Girl in the Ring won the Warner Aspect Award yes. as the first novel. And I believe it was, I believe I'm almost certain it was at a world, no, it was at a, what they used to call the ABA, the American Booksellers Association, which is now the BEA, yep. Book Expo America. And I think it was Betsy Mitchell who came up to me and she, at that point, I, she knew that I was writing reviews for Locus. Yeah. And she started telling me about this book and I thought this sounds really interesting because whoever heard uh, at that point of a Toronto Jamaican science fiction writer. Exactly. So she foisted a copy upon me, and I thought, okay, this is really, really exciting. It's, it's, it's like a little bit of everything. There's some terrific horror writing in it. It's a near-future dystopia in Toronto. It's got, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's got uh, you know, Caribbean magic and folklore in it. It's got duppies in it. Uh, and so it, had, it was like everything that she had to write, she was writing in that. But it was dynamite. It was yeah. one of those novels where you think the same kind of reaction I had when I read Karen Lord's first novel same kind of reaction I had this past year when I read Karen Tidbeck's uh, Yaganath. Yeah, yeah. Or this is just something I haven't seen before. Yeah. And what's interesting, when you see that, you want to know if this writer is going to be able to grow with that kind of material yeah. or simply repeat it. And, and Nalo's career has been very interesting since then because she's never come close to repeating the material. No. But she's, she's returned to something of the same setting and something of the same magic. Um, with um, with the new one with um, Sister Mine, yeah, Sister Mine, yeah. It's, Which, it's another it's yeah. another footnote I have about not titles like that. Sister Mine, as a title, I think I, I'm sure there's a negotiation between the publisher and between Nalo. But Sister Mine is a very generic sounding, very mainstream sounding title. Yeah. Which, when you read the book, is not only utterly justified, but in fact pushes your reading of the book in a certain direction. It's a novel about two sisters. Sure. There's a part of me that wonders, though, this doesn't say anything like fantasy or science fiction. It says it could be a, it could be a mainstream title as well as a fantasy title. Yeah. Does that make any difference? If it's fantasy or mainstream. Well, whether the title sounds fantasy or mainstream. No. I mean, let, let, let's start with the cover is pretty unambiguous. Yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful, rich cover. Um, very much in keeping with her earlier books. And I think, put it this way, I don't think a mainstream reader would have been put off by Brown Girl in the, wing, the Ring, really. Uh, they may, in their mind, when they read it, slot it into a magic realist slot. Yeah. But I think they'd still get a lot out of it. And my guess is, though I've obviously, unlike you, because I didn't get a galley of it, I've not read Sister Mine, so I don't know. Right. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, 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 it's fair enough. No, no, it's okay. Former reviewers don't get them the way you do. Uh, or have the time to read them, frankly. You, 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 as editors, you get former galleys, which are called books. <laughs> well, I've got to tell you, I don't even get... No, I'm not going to get into that, that complaint, because it's more important about this. Uh, it, it, I think I'm confident that anybody picking this book, book up as a mainstream book would, would still find it fully rewarding oh, but yeah. but it's interesting that you know with the way it's packaged i don't think it needs to be sold as science fiction and there's nothing on it that actually says science fiction or fantasy i mean there's fantastical imagery on the cover uh sort of there's a guitar there's music there's a, a, a black face there's all sort of thing i i know I, I don't know actually i'd be interested to see how it would sit in a mainstream bookstore and how people would re react to it 
it's not immediately genre, but I think that's fine because I don't think she's immediately genre. She's definitely no, genre, she's but not. not immediately genre. Splitting hairs. I, I, splitting hairs, but I mean, this is this is less. If, if if you're using that sort of vague mainstreamy term, magic realism, in the traditional literary sense, where there are a few magical things carefully controlled within the context of a of a realistic novel, the New Moon's Arms was much more magic realist than this is. Yeah. This is a fantasy novel. Okay. This is a. Uh, I, I was I, I was tempted, and I I may. I shouldn't say this, but but it's 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 set in Toronto. It deals with a family of gods, and your first reaction is thinking, okay, this is Canadian gods. That's exactly what went through my mind when you said that. But yeah, but they aren't Canadian gods, it turns out. But still, it it could work that way. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, so it's it's flat out fantasy. It's 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 as much fantasy as American gods is fantasy. Yeah, okay. And, uh, and 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 so it'll it, it'll 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 reach both audiences. But I think you're right. I think now. I'll, has multiple readerships. I hope she does anyway. Yeah. And, of course, she will be in Canberra about two weeks after the book comes out. Excellent. So copies should be available. I assume the dealer's room there will be full of the book, and if they're not, that would be foolish um, and disappointing. I certainly actually – I will refrain from ordering a copy, Gary, and oh, maybe what, what do I have to do? Now – I have to see about how I'm going to get a copy to, to read it, but but I want to get a copy. Maybe I'll take a copy with me if I go. We'll see. Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling too You're, soon. Too soon, yeah. We, rambling isn't scheduled to start for 17 minutes yet. So, we can have so what else? Of, uh, speaking of, of finished books, it's one of the things I one of the things I got in the mail today was a final uh, finished copy, an actual copy of the book of Curran um, Lord's The Best of All Possible Worlds. Ah, yes, yes. It's a lovely book. Uh, you mean physically it, it, or or to read? A physically, physically, it's a very yeah. attractive uh, jacket. It's a mm -hmm. books are final copies are always more substantial. They have mm. better paper. They have dust jackets and so forth. And th there is this. I don't know if it's a psychological thing. I've asked myself about it a few times. When you're reading something um, in a in a in a galley or an arc, or even more so when you're reading something uh, just as a raw text file from a manuscript. Yeah. Or when you're reading something online, such as the new Bruce Sterling novel, there are there's a different feeling. There's something imposing about having a serious-looking book in your hands. Oh, it has there? a dust jacket on it and a nice cover yep. design that makes you psychologically think this is this is a serious thing. This is a product which somebody has put some money into designing. And and when you're when you're not looking at that, you don't have that reaction. You have the reaction: this is a bunch of words. And Very much. Which is better? I mean, is it? Uh, oh, there's no. Better is, is the wrong way of putting it. It's different, and you have a different. Well, I have a different, and it seems like you have a different uh, reaction to it. I mean, a couple of years ago, I was talking to Bob Silverberg, who's a good mm -hmm. friend of both of ours, and who we should have on the podcast. Yes, we and, should. And uh, Bob sent me the electronic copies at that point to put on my Kindle of the collected stories books that Subterranean Press are doing. Now, I thought, well, that's really very useful to ha have. And what he's saying really was, here's all my collected short fiction in case you need to reprint any of it. You can check it out and then, you know, get we can talk about it if you're doing mm -hmm. an anthology, as I do. Now, along the way, Subterranean Press, hi, Bill, mm -hmm. have been doing the collected stories. Yes. Now, for those of you who are actually listening to the podcast, I just held up to my iPad a copy of Volume 6 Multiples by Robert Silverberg so that Gary could see the beautiful red cloth-bound, authoritative-looking book. It's the kind of book you feel you would sit in an armchair with a glass of scotch and some music playing, and the world would just have more gravitas as you went through it. That's exactly what I mean. I mean, one of the things um, – you, you mentioned that Subterranean is uh, – uh, is, is doing uh, some Harlan Ellison books now. Oh, yeah. And uh, Gentleman Junkie and uh, uh, Deadly Streets, I guess. And in, in what I assume are going to be very attractive editions because Subterranean does very attractive editions. This is my and, weakness, right? My house is overflowing with books. I know yours are all in a, in a locker somewhere. But I just look at, I looked at Gentleman Junkie, which I've, I, is one of the few Ellison collections I don't have. Mm -hmm. And I saw it when uh, Subterranean posted that on the website along with the novel they're reprinting. And it is freaking gorgeous, Gary, I have yeah. to say. Absolutely. Because they're, yeah, they're doing that and the Deadly Streets. 
And I've developed a real taste, preference, whatever, for um, for the original edition artwork for some of mm-hmm. the older science fiction and fantasy titles that are in, in our world. Uh, so, like, if I could get a reproduction copy of uh, Stranger in a Strange Land with the original cover, I'd buy it in a second. I really. Oh, yeah. Would. I could. And well, this I mean, book the... comes with a gorgeously Leon Diane Dillon jacket. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and I may have read one or two of the stories. I'll probably buy a copy of this just to have it, even if I never read it. That's, that's going beyond what I would do, but I certainly appreciate the notion that the physical package of a book. Uh, can influence the way you read. I, I heard a lot of people uh, responding to this Library of America thing. They're gorgeous books. I don't yes. take credit for them, but they are. Yeah. And these are books that most people, if they owned, owned in, in tatty paperback editions. Um, so having a book which has seen most of its life, most of Harlan Ellison's books, I've seen most of their life in paperback editions, in a really attractive edition, almost invites you, if not forces you, to take the book a little bit more seriously than you otherwise would have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of this has to do with what the nature of e-books is. Yeah. Um, the, there, there's something, uh, well, a good example, I'm just talking about the psychology of reading, not about the content of the book. But Bruce Sterling's Love is Strange is yes. available only online. Yes. It has a cover design, it's, but it's still, it's, you, I read it on my Kindle. Yes. And I thought, well, uh, I felt like I was reacting to words apart from a package. I didn't know where it was going to end. I didn't know how much it felt. I didn't know how much it weighed. There's not a product there. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I'm not sure I would have reacted to it any differently had I had a physical book. But I might have. I don't know. Yeah. And I've not had enough time. I, I've never done this test of actually reading the same book No, on, I haven't. online. On a candle and then reading a physical book. I don't think you can do oh. that test. Well, I have had one or two occasions where, now that I think about it, where I happen to have had a galley or a final and I've got an electronic copy and maybe I've, for some reason, swapped back and forth between the two. And you do, well, I've had, uh, yeah. You do feel um, different well, about it. Yeah, sorry, you go ahead. Well, here, here, here's an example. What was your feeling on that? When you had the I don't know. I didn't really think well, about it at the time. In retrospect, I think what you sort of do is. You transpose your feelings about the print book onto the ebook a little bit. The the print book is the dominant emotional reaction, I find. The print book has, if you use the word gravitas, it literally has gravitas. It has weight. Well, yeah. Uh, but but you mentioned you mentioned anthologies, and I've done this. Actually, I've done this uh, once or twice with the best of the year anthology, where I would get an online copy, and at some point. The finished copy arrives. Not the finished copy, but the arc. Yeah. Because now there are three stages of a book. You know, there's there, there's the e-copy or the manuscript or the e-arc, and then there's sometimes the physical arc, less common than used to be, and then there's the f- finished book. And each stage, at least to me at my age, seems more substantial. When I had a file, an electronic file of a book on my Kindle, and the actual physical book arrives, I would gravitate to the physical book. Yeah. Uh, because I think I have more of a sense of, of what it's like as an object. Yeah. And one of the things that raised me a little bit about the rise of electronic publishing is that our books going to cease to become objects, these things that you love, like this wonderful... No, I think the opposite will happen, Gary. I'm, I'm completely, I could be completely wrong, but I, I've been reading about some of this stuff. And I think what happens is, and this is why I believe Subterranean Press are doing as well as they are and will continue to do so, we begin to crave the beautiful book anyway. And so the books that get made will be more beautiful mm-hmm. because the people who value that will value it highly, but they'll be made for a, a niche market. I mean, uh, if, if you're a Harlan Ellison fan, there's going to be a thousand copies of The Gentleman Junkie and other stories of the hung-up generation published, and that'll be it, right? Uh, fortunately, mm-hmm. in the internet age, you can get them quite quickly, you can, uh, quite reliably, you can make sure you have them. But... Um, the ebook of it would be a pointless exercise to me. It's like I want the beautiful book that they produce, um, yeah. and I think that that'll be the. Well, I, I still okay. I still think the way the world should work is, if you buy the ebook, you've got the ebook. If you buy the print book, they'll give you the ebook for a small amount extra or about the same price, so you can go back and forth between the two, um, mm. because 
I like having a final book, and I, I find it difficult still, and I don't know if you do. When you've read a book for a review or whatever else, and it was a, an A copy or an ARC, which is advanced reader copy, we should say, um, it's kind of difficult to motivate yourself to actually buy the final book as well. Because you've read it. Yeah. You know, you've got a kick, copy kicking around the house. And quite often you don't get sent one. Uh, I'm reading an electronic copy of a book right now. I'm reading mm -hmm. uh, Neptune's Brood by Charles Stross, his slow space opera, which I'm really enjoying. It's a really interesting book. And the whole idea of it and the whole idea that if you have sub-light uh, sub travel, if, if faster the speed of light travel isn't um, isn't possible, then how do, on what time scale does, it, do, does culture operate? On what time scale can economics, intersolar system uh, economics work? So you can have fast money that's actually current stuff, and, and medium money, and then slow money, which is complexly set up stuff that basically never changes changes in value or changes in value over generations and all this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Fascinating stuff, really. Uh, I mean, I realize that economics don't doesn't initially sound like the most interesting thing, but you know, Strauss is, at least so far, spinning a really interesting tale in the book. But I don't have a feel for it. And then I saw a cover of it online, and I'm like, oh, that's the book I'm reading, huh? You know? Yeah. I mean, in an ideal world, I think I agree that I would like to have a physical copy and an e-copy of everything. Hmm. I like the I like the ability to search an e-copy. Yeah. I like the idea on uh, at least on my Kindle I can underline and mark things without actually defacing a book in some ways. Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, I've had the same reaction exactly. Oh, that's what this is. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah and, and it really, uh, it, it, like I say, I don't think it changes your attitude toward the content of the book, but it certainly does change your attitude toward what the book is. Uh, Very much. And cover art also, good cover art can really help a book out. Absolutely. Uh, it can the cover art of twenty three twelve, for example. Yes. Which is in, in some ways it's kind of classic science fiction cover mm -hmm. art, but it 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 conveys this is classic science fiction in a way that no amount of flap copy can. Absolutely. Uh, the, another great example are, are the uh, James Corey covers that Orbit have done. Yeah. I'd never heard of James S A Corey when he came along, but Leviathan's Wake looked like exactly what it is a or supposed to be a big. Uh, sprawling 1970s style space adventure novel. Mm -hmm. And so if you respond to that, that cover captures it beautifully. I have to say that of my own recent books, Edge of Infinity, I think, really has the same kind of effect. It's, yeah, it does. That, that cover exactly tells you what the book is about. And it's a, lov it's, it's a lovely cover. So, you know, and, and one thing they've not yet cracked is ebook art and design so you get the same kind of feel now i have to real allow and i think you do too mm -hmm. um maybe a 15 year old reader will feel differently you know if um, if, if if as times pass your primary exposure to book covers or to a book is ebook your feelings would change i would think mm -hmm. i think it may be different um when you're trying to do historical research because I've talked to readers even older than I am sure. um, who, who talked about you don't you don't understand what it was like to read pulp science fiction unless you read them in the pulps and I actually did this I was writing my first book about science fiction and I had at that point um, been able to you could still buy pulp magazines old pulp magazines reasonably cheaply there was a can there's there was a used bookstore when I was a kid when I was a teenager there was a used bookstore in Kansas City 12th Street books they had piles of old amazing stories from yep. the 40s, and they were like less than a dollar a piece. Yep. Um, and I bought them not because I was interested in them. I'd never at that point I'd never heard of Captain S. B. Meek. I barely knew who Nelson Bond was. Yeah. But I wanted to get the sense of what it was like to read a pulp magazine. Yeah. And I'm convinced to this day that reading something like I think the, I think Lovecraft's The Color Out of Space may have been the one story he sold to Astounding. Um, and it is different. You are you 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 are you are experiencing a kind of cultural dissonance in reading a pulp magazine. If you're reading somebody like Lovecraft, who, let's say, at the very least, his style was somewhat pretentious, mm -hmm. was was hyper literate, and you're reading him amid 
bodybuilding regimens and 10 cent mm-hmm. magic tricks and this sort of thing. And you realize this is, this is what it was like to encounter this sort of thing. And this is what it was like to be a reader at that, at that time. And how does, how does anything survive those pa- that, that packaging? Yeah. How did anybody, Fritz Leiber or Lovecraft or, uh, or Heinlein or, or Asimov su- survive being in these really tacky looking magazines? And then you realize, okay, that means that the readers of that era to turn some writers into classics and to let others, Captain S.P. Meek, yeah. disappear, must have been making genuine literary discriminations of a kind that we don't really have to make much anymore. Same thing's true in the 1950s. Uh, the paperbacks, um, the the Ballantine paperbacks, because I looked at a lot of these when I was doing this, Ballantine paperbacks looked great. They had Richard Powers covers, they were literate, they had um, uh, fantasy and science fiction, but... You look at people like John Brunner and, and Brian Aldous who began their career in the United States on ace doubles. Yep. That absolutely you had to you had to be able to read that text and say, This is way better than that cover art. <laughs> well I guess I guess what we're really saying, and, and it's just an extra, you know, an extension of an of an old observation, a very old one, that um, the frame influences the art, that context is everything. I think it uh, does. And you know, uh, the context of reading an e-book is different from reading a print book, even though it's the same text. Uh, the context of reading a short story is changed when you put it in a collection or in an anthology or in a magazine. Uh, a magazine is different if it downloads seamlessly onto your iPad than it is if it's mm-hmm. found in a pile of mouldering old pulps in an a- attic, you know. I, I, mean, think, not- I think that you're right, and I don't think it's necessarily the medium. I think the context is true, the medium... You're, you're right. A 15-year-old might want to uh, read a, a novel on an iPad. Part of the problem, I don't. I've not seen much e-publishing that looks like it's well designed for an iPad. The uh, the Kindle I have is a first. I don't know. It's a black and white Kindle. It's yeah. not a Kindle Fire, but it's a non-color Kindle, which means that uh, it has advantages. It doesn't reflect. But nevertheless, sure. nobody's designed anything good for a Kindle because nothing looks good on a Kindle except <laughs> your type. Yeah. Now, when you start getting the uh, the new Nooks and the new Kindles and the iPad and that sort of thing. And I've, I've read a number of books and stories on the iPad. They're not designed for the iPad. They don't take advantage of the kind of gorgeous colors and uh, and things that they could take advantage of. You're starting, beginning. To, you're starting to see it in magazine design much more. Ooh. Because magazines, of course, have realized that the iPad, etc., Kindle Fire, well, the tablet environment, yeah. is its only future. Yes. That, that's where it's going to live or die. And so, for example, just the other week, Rolling Stone magazine rolled out an, uh, an app to view its magazine on. And it's an enormously satisfying way to read it. It's really nice. I mean, we should say as well, without going to the extent of an app, uh, Locus, mm-hmm. I, I personally, I find Locus much more pleasurable to read than I ever did in the past. Um, I find it both ways. I mean, there are things in Locus magazine, um, navigating through the contents, reading the interviews, reading the reviews... I find much easier on the iPad. Yeah. When we get to things that are still very important, at least for people like me, the books received or the forthcoming books, I tend to find that easier to deal with in the print magazine. That's interesting because what I find is I can bump up the type size because, of course, Locus has always had to run those lists and things in tiny, tiny type. Yeah, that's true. So you know, it's much easier to sort of read them uh, in, in the uh, e-edition, I find. And so you know, it's, that that's an area where, where it's a, a, you know, a bonus. So, and the other magazine which I'm very fond of on the iPad is the New Yorker, which is one of the first magazines to have a complete redesign for its pad version, and it is uh, it, it's much more attractive. I mean, everything everything is brighter and crisper and clearer, and um, flows flows. You you scroll. You're reading a short story, and you scroll down, and you have the whole story. You're not being yep. interrupted by things. Yep. You scroll left, and you're turning the page. Exactly. But also, they yeah. haven't stuck too slavishly with the animated appearance of page turning. You know, that fake... There's a, sort of, there's a version of that... Oh, which is kind of a fake look kind of thing, where you see like an animated page go over and all yeah. this kind of stuff. And it doesn't really work. But, I don't know. That's a transitional technology because you're going to get to the point now and, and probably within a, a few years when these 15-year-olds you're talking about is, what is that fake page? Tra- they don't even know what it is because they're not used to turning pages no, in a magazine. No, And in fact, weirdly, actually, uh, in my day job where we do web design work, someone was actually asking f- for this, for, for what we do. And we're going like, 
but nobody wants it. It's crazy stuff. So yeah, whatever. So anyway, so, so, so up- I guess what, what I'm, try, I'm, I'm trying to think back now to what the point of this this long di- digression was into reading ebooks. Um, yeah, that's really what it amounts to. And it, it, it came up in my mind this because simply because Love is Strange, which yeah, is a strange yes. novel, is yeah. only an ebook, And it's the first time that I, as a Locust reviewer, I think, maybe the first time I've ever, uh, well, I got it myself, but I've, I've ever been in the position of reviewing an ebook only publication. Okay. We've had one or two of them around. So, so actually... Tell me about this book. I mean, it's a curious book because, I mean, Bruce made a throwaway reference to it in an email you know, last year that he'd written a paranormal romance for a bit of a giggle. And, of mm-hmm. course, the, I think the opening chapters of it formed a short story that came out uh, last year that I put in the year's best. But what do you think of the novel? Um, I'm not sure it's entirely successful. Uh, I think it is a paranormal romance. Yep. It is very much a romance. He's, he is writing romantic dialogue that would have been not out of place in 1930s Hollywood movies. I mean, it's he needs me. I must fly to him. Kinds of things, uh, really. <laughs> yeah. and, and and it's one of the things where uh, with that particular character, and well, the the main male and female characters who are the romantic leads, both have dialogue, which at times seems to be a parody of romantic novels, but at the same time you're meant to like the characters. Yes. Now that's sort of the affective uh, character-based part of it. There's a second part of it, which is clearly what I think he wants to get at. The two characters are, one is a futurist, he's an accountant who's a trend analyst. They meet at a trends analysis conference in Capri, which is the part actually that was in your year's best. And she clearly comes from a kind of witch-like family, so she has some kind of occult, visionary sense of the future, and he has a kind of statistical... So the, the book, I think, is really about different ways of looking at the future. Okay. And I think intellectually, everything Bruce Sterling does intellectually works. Because yep. he thinks through his ideas. <laughs> at the level of character, the, 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 and there's, a, there's a subplot involving a retired American academic who's trying to track down uh, a, a lost Cupid statue which was commissioned by a 19th century American woman novelist who turns out to be a real novelist. Um, and that subplot is fascinating, uh, but none. Of, I'm not sure any of these things really come together. Okay. Uh, in, in the sense that they should, I, I think that some of the dialogue is appalling, frankly. <laughs> Let's be kind and call it stylized, shall we? <laughs> well, st- okay, but the but at the same time, the thinking behind ways we apprehend the future is really provocative yeah. the paranormal part as i say is entirely in her hands she she has a sort of paranormal vision. oh and there's a little bit of a voyage to arcturus at the end of it but i won't even try to explain what that is good man so okay. so, so tell me so you you you're actually reading far more than i am at the moment for various reasons how is 2013 shaping up gary i think 2013 looks like a promising year i'm not sure everything that's going to be coming out but uh so far it's uh, the things I've been reading uh, are solid, if not revolutionary. I mean, uh, Karen Lord's second novel is a 2013 novel, isn't it? It is yes, indeed. It. Yeah. And it's it may be a harbinger of the year. It's 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 in some ways an old si- old fashioned science fiction novel. In some ways, it's a very Le Guinian science fiction novel. Yeah. Okay. It interestingly enough is also a very romantic novel. Okay. So this may be one of the years in which I don't know romance and science fiction finally, you know figure out some way to negotiate a relationship which they have utterly failed to do for the last hundred years. Okay. Um, now, the best of all possible worlds, I think, is out in March, actually. And maybe we'll okay. talk about it a little bit, bit more on a future podcast, I hope. Um, mm-hmm. But you've also read the new, um, well, Caitlin R. Kiernan slash Kathleen Tierney novel, Blood Oranges. Which is, I've, I've read that, Blood Oranges, which is um, not... Uh, it's not a Caitlin Kiernan novel, and this is uh, this is one of the things that sometimes I, I question when writers use pseudonyms. But I think Caitlin, and we've we've talked to her about this on this podcast. Mm-hmm. I mean, she knew that the Red Tree was a good novel, and she knew yeah. that the Drowning Girl was a better novel, and she's on a real uh, arc of of writing major literary fiction. Mm-hmm. Blood Oranges is a 
parody of of, of, of every uh, paranormal romantic cliche that you could think of, and yeah. and it's, it's it's very funny, it's very tough, it's it's very violent in places, but it's it's not Caitlin Kiernan trying to do the next thing in the succession after the Drowning Girl. Yeah, I, I think she's made that very clear on her blog. In fact, that extremely is, clear. Yeah. Okay. And actually, I think uh, the so, thing that'll count as the next major. Actually, interestingly, the thing that I think was going to count as the next major Caitlin Kiernan work is only going to be very available under very specific circumstances. Oh, really? Because, oh, yes, very much. Well, you may be aware that Caitlin has a new collection coming out from Subterranean Press, a book called The Ape's Wife and Other Stories. Uh-huh. No, now, I don't know. Well, there you go. Now you do. The Ape's Wife and Other Stories is coming out, I think, in July. Mm-hmm. And if you splurge on the limited edition, which I certainly would, it comes with a bonus hardcover called Black Helicopters. Hmm. Black Helicopters is a lo- is an original twenty six thousand word novella that Caitlin ca- calls the, the the next best major thing she's done after uh, the Drowning Girl. Uh huh. Which I think makes the limited edition and it sounds like I'm just shilling for Subterranean, doesn't it now? Um. But it's the it's the next thing you have to have. I mean, I think the, the signed limited is going to be completely essential. Well, doesn't she have the second volume of the best of Caitlin Kiernan also coming out this year? No, I don't think it's this year. I think it's next year. Oh, so it's going to be a while. Well, I mean, uh, I think that was always the plan. That it was going to be a 2014 book. Mm-hmm. And she's got well, sort of, sorry. Yeah. As long as we're plugging Subterranean, another book which I just, I mean, <laughs> just things that came in the mail is. Is Lucius Shepard's five autobiographies and a fiction, which is a collection of novellas. Yes. All, some of which I've read, and all of which the ones I've read are just terrific. It's interesting. Lucius is in a curious spot right now. I kind of feel like he had that re- he had that first explosion of his career back in the late '80s, mm-hmm. culminating in two of the greatest collections of stories the field has ever seen: uh, the Jaguar Hunter and, and uh, the Ends of the Earth. Mm-hmm. Both of which won the World Fantasy Award. And then he went quiet for a little while, I recall. And then he bounced back with this long string of long short, long pieces of fiction. Uh, not right. so much novels, but um, novella lengths, which were yeah. caught up in books like Dagger Key and Trujillo and other stories. Right. Um, and now it seems to be like quiet again. Now, these, these stories are sort of were written before he was ill. He was ill for a while and apparently he's just back writing now. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see what we get from him because although I feel he's sort of fallen off the radar a little bit, he's still producing remarkable work. I mean, one of the books of last year and one that's not talked about anywhere near enough is The Dragon mm-hmm. Roll. Yes. You know, I may be the only person who remembers the interview in Science Fiction I where he described The Grand Tour, which is the book that it should be. But this yeah. is nonetheless... An amazingly important uh, collection with a, a near novel-length original Dragon Grail story in it, and the Grail stories are, are, are enormously important things. And you know, sort of, it's, I'm surprised it's not been talked about more. I think he's la- in a way um, he's lapsed into a, a, a strange niche. Mm. No one thinks of Lucius Shepard as a science. Nobody thinks of in war times, uh, not in war times, but life during uh, wartime. Life during wartime. Uh, People tend to think he's, he's moving more into into that kind of novella-length fantasy. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the novellas which is in the new collection is, is Rose Street Attractors, which was under serious consideration. I, mean, I think it was a finalist for the Shirley Jackson Award. And in a sense, in a sense, Caitlin Kiernan is in that same area where the Shirley Jackson Awards might seem appropriate, world fantasy would certainly seem appropriate, but they're not, in any sense, traditional fantasies. They're not traditional no. science fiction. There are elements of sort of eldritch horror in a lot of these things. Um, so so he's, he's in a kind of odd area, which is, in some senses, more a subcategory of mainstream literature than it is of genre literature. Yeah. Um, and I, I, so I, I think you're right. I think he's writing terrific fiction, but I, uh, I, I think he's fallen off the science fiction radar entirely, and wow. he never did the kind of massive book that would put him on the genre fantasy radar. No, I think he's he falls into that happy uh, group of genre individualists who probably would have spat in your eye if you'd asked him to write that book. Though he, he actually did touch on it. He got near to it, Gary, uh, when he wrote The Golden, which was his vampire novel. Well, that's true, which, which I've is, not read. 
And he also was asked, I I believe, to write uh, Dragon Grey All novels and was unwilling to, um, to, 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 you know, write that at the time. But the thing is, if, if you look at, at Lucius's body of work, uh, it features one amazing classic after the other. Um, it is idiosyncratic. It is powerful. It's often very uh, aimed at a kind of a street level, uh, no matter what mm-hmm. he's doing. Um, I think the real problem is that he's been so good for so long that we take him for granted. I think it's just like, oh, of course he's good. Well, yeah, it's a good, another good story from Lucius. Of course it is. There's a. Uh, this is. I, I could. I could get in trouble for this. I'm almost, begin, almost beginning to think that there's a reader kind of group of writers. Yeah. Who are enormously admired by other writers, uh, who have varying levels of success, and and certainly Crowley is one of these. Uh, I think Lucius Shepard, who shows up intermittently at reader cons, is one of these. I think. Uh, Although she's more successful in more areas, probably Elizabeth Hand is part of this. But there is this area of non-genre writers. They write, they use the materials of genre, but but they're not directing any of their fiction toward a clickish audience. Yeah. Uh, Crowley, Crowley, we know that John Crowley knows how to write science fiction. We know that Lucius Shepard knows how to write science fiction. Uh, they choose to do something else, and that and and, and what they do gains enormous respect from other writers. I mean, all, mm. all these people are people that you can find, you can line up writers that admire what they do. But the audience uh, seems to be in that strange uh, realm of literary American fantastica that doesn't quite match up with the outlines of any particular genre audience. So do you figure five autobi- autobiographies and a fiction will be a highlight of 2013? Or, or deserves to be seen it, as such. I think it'll be a uh, an important collection, absolutely, uh, because I've like I said I've read two of the novellas in it already. Uh, the problem is, again, it's a it's an important collection. It's coming out in a relatively small edition in April from Subterranean. Um, oh, since but, this is since, since this is now the special Subterranean edition of the Cood Street Podcast, we can say we're just whacking out one great book after the other at the moment. Subterranean's on a really good roll right now, and they have a good idea of doing, of, of how to get this stuff out. What I don't know about this year, I mean, we, we look at last year, we were going to talk a little bit before we got done with this about Hugo nominees. Well, you, unfortunately, there's no, there's not a Hugo, Hugo category for collection. No, but or, if there were... If well, there were, they would be all over it. They would be all over it. Um, yeah. the, the only thing that's it's, probably interesting is that quite often Subterranean magazine isn't valued highly enough when it comes time to look at awards. Mm. Well, subterranean doesn't depend on spiking sales after awards because by the time awards come out, subterranean sold out its printing. And um, they're a very skilled publisher. What I'm saying is, I don't see so far. I don't see a collection coming out in 2013 that will have the dramatic impact that At the Mouth of the River of Bees had in 2012. You're probably correct, but I think you need to sort of like watch this space i think what we've seen over the last five years is that those books seem to be coming out with rather disturbing regularity gary um who's the next because you're you're much more current with short stories than i am all right but who is the next kids johnson who's the next person who can put together a collection of consistently brilliant stories like that i think there's a ken lu collection that would be coming up We're, we're probably about a year away from it Okay. I think we're actually interestingly if you if you could disassemble other things that have been published there's actually a Catherine Valenti collection that would be quite startlingly good mm-hmm. uh, she's put a, a, an amazing batch of stories together I think Aliette de Bodard is putting together a body of work that will will lead to a great collection a really really great one and mm-hmm. actually, I, I wouldn't have originally said I thought this, but I've come around to the view that Levi Tidhar probably is as well. They're, they're very prolific writers, some of them. I mean, like, De Bedard has written quite a lot. Uh, Tidhar has written, uh-huh. uh, read a lot, written a lot. Um, so I think that, you know, they're possibles. There are a few quiet people, quiet ones out there, like... Uh, Christopher Rowe is a long-time underperformer and actually getting volumes of work out there. But there's uh-huh. stuff starting to come out, a bit more here, a bit more there. And I think that um, when his first real collection comes out, it'll be pretty pretty startlingly good. 
Um, I also happen, you know, I also, I also know there are things like there is a new Ellen Clages collection which should you know, should be able to be done fairly soon, and I think it would probably stand up very well. Um, who else? I mean, there are. I mean, yeah. Those, well, I mean, those ones off the top see, of my head. We could see the Kids Johnson collection coming because there were those multiple award nominations over two and three successive years. Yeah. So it's clear that this was going to be a, a, a major collection when it came out. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, anytime and whenever we, we just count up how many Ted Chang stories there are before <laughs> it's time for a collection. Yeah, well, it'll be another uh, 10 you know, years at this rate. Well, at this, at this rate, it's going to be a while. That's true. But and, um, and there's some. It's interesting that we now have such a rich uh, body of short fiction around that we don't that, that, that collections come along and collections that ten years ago would have been standout books, real standouts, kind of just get a shrug on the way past. You know, I mean, uh, the new Jeff Ford collection last year got some talk, and I think has a good chance at making the World Fantasy ballot. Mm-hmm. But. Let's be honest, it didn't get the same kind of talk as um, Empire of Ice Cream did, say. Um, now, some of it's because you've been around longer, but I think some of it's because contextually there's just a lot more stuff. Um, Elizabeth Bear had a collection come out at the end of the year. It right. uh, came out from Prime and has some great stories in it. This is uh, Shoggoths in Bloom. And yet, really, not much talk about it. And I think it's only because there's all this other work around, which is over. over I mean, and, and stuff's getting put off into odd spots. I mean, um, there's going to be a major Best of Paul, Paul Macaulay collection come out. And it's going oh, to come out. Is. It's coming out in a small edition from PS Publishing. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm incredibly grateful to PS Publishing for doing it. And it's in no sense a criticism of PS. I'd hate it to be seen that way. But it's the kind of book you'd think you'd love to be seeing done by a major publisher in an edition of thousands and thousands and put out in all the bookstores. You know, I think we should be grateful to PS and uh, to some extent to Subterranean and very uh, much other publishers simply because PS came out with uh, Kath- Kathleen uh, Goonan's first yes. short story collection. It came out with uh, yeah. Kate Reed's latest short story collection. Any of these are writers who twenty or thirty years ago could have gotten a major press to pick up a short story collection. Yep. It's just something which is, with the rare exception of a Jeff Ford, who can still do that. It's it's rare that any short story collection will be picked up by a major publisher, and this is as true in the mainstream as it is in science. That's, that's almost true. I think it's almost true. I think I think there are more mainstream short story collections than we tend to notice, but not as many as we think there should be. And partly that's because there are so many um, short story collections published. And I don't think the field could ever have supported the number that are now published. And there's some people um, who, there's some people who are so scandalously overdue for a collection that it just leaves you speechless. Such as? Okay, the obvious one to me, and when I say it, I suspect you're going to go, but, and, and the but I'll, I'll get to. Ian MacDonald. There was a story collection, wasn't there, several years ago? What there was, was that, uh, the, uh, okay, in 2009, and I, t- I take my hat off to uh, the publishers who put it out, Golans and Pyre, uh, they published Cyber Bad Days, and that was the collection right. of River of God stories. That was, that was the India stories. Yeah, it was. And really, it's a pendant volume to River of Gods. Right. But uh, Ian has been a prolific and talented short story writer throughout his career. Uh, I don't know if you recall, but uh, when he started his career, it was with Bantam Spectra. And he had two books come out on the same day, I believe, his first novel and his first short story collection, uh, a book called Empire's Dreams. He hasn't had a non like a, a non-themed collection or whatever since 1992. That's the one. Okay, that was one of the first, because that was one of the very first books I reviewed for Locus. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. What was the title of that? Uh, Speaking in Tongues. Yes. Speaking in tongues. So it's been 20 years uh, since he had a full, a, a proper collection. Never mind the best of, you know, mm-hmm. if you set aside the River of Gods related material, which deserved to be collected together and is a great book. And, but there's this incredible wealth of other stuff, major stories, uh, most I mean, uh, most of which are out out of print these days and unavailable, and really which should be collected. And it's a great pity that they're not, you know. 
what um hmm that, that just strikes me as odd because that's a uh, he's become a fairly commercial writer um I'll, he's, he's going to be at CFA this year. I'm going to ask him why he doesn't have more. Probably because there's no one to buy it. I mean, I remember suggesting to someone doing a Best of Ian McDonald, and they were reluctant. But I would, I would have loved to have worked on the book. I think it would have been a a, a great joy to, to, to have a chance to do that. I would think so, yeah. Anyway, let's shift around as we move later in the podcast, in this rambly podcast that's unstructured and unthemed and all that. It is, as you say, Hugo nomination time. I have, I, I'd been... Hugo nomination time. I, I actually had been trying a neat little segue earlier. When, when I was, we, I talked about what are the new books and how is 2013 looking, I thought I'll be able to go, and what about 2012 for the Hugo nominations? Have you started doing your ballot, Gary? I did start doing my ballot, and then I, I, I got kicked out, and I didn't get past the best novel category. Um, it, it seemed to me to be a fairly, um, well, I wouldn't say an easy category. It was easy to find five novels to nominate. Sure. Uh, and but one thing did occur to me when I was looking at mm-hmm. them because one of them, which I think is no surprise to anybody, because we've talked about it enough on the podcast, would be Kim Stanley Robinson's Twenty Three Twelve. Another one, though, which I think would actually get my vote as the best science fiction novel of the year, uh, was my character M. John Harrison's Empty Space. Sure. Now here's the problem. Here's the problem. Another novel which I would cheerfully have nominated um, this Blue Remembered Earth. Sure. Uh, speaking of our friend. Yes, Al Reynolds, yeah. Both of those books are coming out in the United States either within a week before or a week after the Hugo nominations are due. That happens. Well, now, I do believe a friend of this podcast, Cheryl Morgan, who we've not called on too often of late, so hello, Cheryl, friend of this podcast, Um she will probably correct me, but I believe there's a provision for those books to be reconsidered the year after if they want to, I think. Um, I don't know. I, she's probably right. If a book is not widely available, I, I don't know what... Well, that, that, I, I that's, know, that's me paraphrasing, me rec- recalling what she may have said, so don't, let's not say she may be right on that, but I'm sure she will, uh, uh, Cheryl will pop in and, and, and clarify, uh, but uh, that's my you, recollection. <laughs> If you explain us the rules, Cheryl, we will repeat them on next week's podcast. But my point is that what I thought was the best novel of the year is coming out in the United States from Nightshade, I think five days before the deadline. And I think Blue Remembered Earth is coming out months later, in in May or June or something. Uh, If they can be reconsidered the following year, that's fine. But nevertheless, aren't you splitting a vote then? Sure. Um, Another question. If the Hugo Awards were being held in London this year instead of in 2014... Wouldn't those books be easy top contenders? Probably. That's what happens when the Worldcon moves around. Well, that's my point. The Worldcon, uh, who wins the Worldcon, depends in part on where the convention is held. Yes. Yes, there is some truth to that. I mean, uh, Greg Egan won his only Hugo in Australia, unsurprisingly. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, a book which I wrote an essay for, uh, The Cambridge Companion to Science Fiction, which uh, Edward James and Farrah Mendelssohn edited won a Hugo in Glasgow. Yeah. I can't imagine it's having won a Hugo in, let's say, Anaheim. No. And it's certainly true that something like Empty Space by M. John Harrison would have been exponentially more likely to win the award that it quite richly deserves. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of quite richly deserving books this year. Um, if, this, if the London World Con was this year instead of next, yes. I think it's true. I think you're absolutely right. Um, so, which doesn't mean the books don't get recognized, but it's something that, uh, again, comes up. A lot of people haven't seen them. This comes up in every awards, um, situation I've been involved in where you have judges, the world fantasy award always has a European judge. The European judge always has a little bit of difficulty getting a hold of some of the stories and novels. Um, the Hugo at least has the Hugo packet. Yes. I don't, well, can't be made available until the nominees are in, which means that, the short stories, um, it seems to me, have a more level playing field. Yep. That, well, th- I guess so. They're, they're fairly widely available, but even that's not always true. Um, because because if you begin to read around, you'll find short stories published in small press books and whatever else. That can be quite difficult well, to get cool. hold of at times. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, I, I noticed that all of the books that you've mentioned so far, though, have been science fiction titles. And, of course, fantasy titles are also eligible for the Hugo. 
the best fantasy novel I read last year was The Drowning Girl. And The Drowning Girl is, that, is on my ballot. But do most do most people see that as a fantasy novel? Uh, that's that. Like I say, I don't know. Um, I did. Caitlin, Caitlin is one of those people in that shadow, and it's some people. It's on the ballot for the Stoker Awards as a horror novel. Yes, actually, I, I, can I say that that surprised me more than anything? Not because it's not a great book and not worthy of awards. I kind of went. It looked out of place on the Stoker ballot. It to did, me. but it looked out of place. To my mind, it looked out of place because it was one book I knew. <laughs> I don't keep up with horror. I can't um, say it. But oh. I mean, the thing I, I I wonder if this goes into voting as well. That yeah. um, the Drowning Girl, it seems to me, is a very likely candidate for a world world fantasy award. Yes, I think it's deserving of a world fantasy award. Yes. Now, this may be convoluted, paranoid reasoning, but since World Fantasy Convention excludes science fiction. And the World Science Fiction Convention does not exclude fantasy. Are there people who might be reasoning, well, the Drowning Girl is a shoe-in for a World yep. Fantasy Award, so I'll vote for something else for a Hugo Award? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that very well may. And I know people, in fact, who uh, enforce that decision themselves. They go, I don't care that uh, the Hugo, Hugo covers science fiction and fantasy. I'm only going to nominate science fiction. And, yeah, hey, that's a personal call. Mm -hmm. Um I think it's a would be a little disappointing. I think now, I mean, since they've, the, the the readership have deliberately for a long time made the Hugo specifically science fiction and fantasy, I would want to go along with it. And I like the idea of there being a ballot that's going to have 2312 and The Drowning Girl and Empty Space on it, you know. Mm -hmm. I think that embracing that possibility is something that we should do. Well, I mean, you can you can – if you wanted to get really theoretically fine-tuned, you could carve genres up in a different way, that The Drowning Girl and Empty Space have something in common that most genre titles don't. There's a significant portions of them are mainstream character studies mm -hmm. uh, that that use, in, in Caitlin's case, the supernatural, and in Mike's case, the, the science fictional stuff, are around it. But they're not science fiction... Mike Harrison's novel is not science fiction in the way that Kim Stanley Robinson's novel true, is. True, true. And it doesn't try to be. It's not trying to do the same oh. thing. So I, I tend to agree with you because I think that when you look at what science fiction is doing, it's all over the map. It's trying it to is. do a dozen different things. Steampunk is not trying to do the same thing that new space opera is doing, which is not trying to do the same thing that uh, near future. Very true. Uh, Very so, true. So, so basically you're, you're, you're just not, even coming close to comparing comparable entities when you're looking yeah. at these awards. I think it's also time, Gary, I mean, I agree with you. It's also time that we should launch an incredibly ineffectual campaign for the Hugo Award. We should at least mention that this podcast, which you're listening to, dear listeners, and we believe there's around a thousand of you, hello, uh, that this podcast is eligible for the best fan cast category, something we were nominated for last year and was a great well, honor. The fan cast, yeah, a, a new category. Um, yeah. And there are many fine podcasts out there, but, you know, it would be lovely to be nominated again. <laughs> I might, we might as well just be brazen about this. Well, give us a Hugo. Uh, no, we uh, can't do that. Give us a Hugo <laughs> and we'll send you a cookie. And you'll what, sorry? Give us a Give us a Hugo and we'll send you a cookie. <laughs> I mean, how many people, I, can, I can afford like 1,100 cookies. How many people vote on the... Gluten-free cookies. My, uh, my stepdaughter makes really – she makes the best gluten-free brownies in the world. If you give a mouse a Hugo. If you give a mouse a Hugo, it'll just ask for a nebula. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can tell you've been reading books to your daughters. I have indeed. So, yes. The, and, of course, I, I guess we, we, we can slide across just briefly. The other thing that, that, that actually is open, the other thing we should be doing, because I don't know about you, I, I find I love nominating. I've, I've got all the caveats and calms about awards that many people do, but I love the whole thing. Always have. And I love the nomination process. It's kind of like weirdly therapeutic, this idle kind of thing where you sit with a cup of coffee and you ballot and you scratch around and you think about things that could go into it. And the other ballot that's up there for us to work on, even though most people don't do it, and I'd love to see people be more active in it because it does make a substantial difference, is the World Fantasy Awards. Nominations uh -huh. for the World Fantasies are open. The actual you know, uh, membership you know, um, nominations. And so if you are a uh, member of the World Fantasy Convention, you can nominate. And there's just a 
bundle of great books that you could be nominating. Uh, yeah, world fantasy. Here's the interesting thing about the way these genres work is that uh, science fiction, it seems to me that Hugo slides into fantasy fairly easily, but not really into horror. And world fantasy is fantasy which slides fairly easily into horror, but not into science fiction. True, true. So, and then there's the World Horror Award, which is, I, I, it seems to me it's, it, it, uh, I don't know. I don't know what it does. It doesn't seem to have much science fiction in it. it all, all, most of the horror seems to be fantasy. But, but by and large, I don't think world horror is really one of the, the, no. the big No, I don't really think so. Awards, so, so. So tell me, do you think that this year's world fantasy novel ballot is a no-brainer? I think it's, I don't know. I have to look at it. I think oh, come that on. Let, let, let me give you a ballot. Let me give you a ballot. You okay. ready? Some yeah. Kind of Fairy Tale by Graham Joyce. Oh, that's easy. The Drowning Girl by Caitlin R. Kiernan. Easy. Sea Hearts by Margot Lanigan. Oh, Hide yeah. Me Among the Graves by Tim Powers. Wow. There's yeah, four a... of your five nominees. Right. Yep, that's not going to be that difficult. <laughs> and the the thing, other, yeah. here's, here's the other thing, and this is something where I defer to you because I was looking at the Hugo ballot, and I'm thinking there are things... Um, that I hadn't paid attention to before. I mean, obviously, I've got my own opinions about novels. Mm. I've got some opinions about novellas. Somebody has made a comment that somebody ought to nominate something besides Doctor Who in the yep, sure. short-term category. And there's, so there's a small campaign going on to look at the last season of Fringe. Mm -hmm. Somebody was tweeting, and I don't know who it was, um, recently about the number of non-Anglo-American fan writers who could be nominated for for best fan, fan writer for example indeed yes charles Carl. tan levy tidhar lots of other people right exactly uh, so that's a that's a category i've never thought that i knew much about and it turns out well maybe i do um but when it comes to sh to especially novelettes and short stories my opinion of the best novelettes and short stories emerges after i read your best of the year collection and gardner's best of the year collection and david's in other words i'm always a year late on knowing what the best fiction of the year is, because I don't read all the magazines. I can't. I'm reading all these novels. It's true, and you know that that that's the choice you make. But at least you get a chance to catch up. I do, but it seems to me that um, I mean I've never actually had this sense that I, I finally get around. Okay, I'm reading, uh, let's say the year's best science fiction and fantasy, and there's this dynamite story in it. I don't know the 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 Rachel Swirsky story about the. Queen's yeah. flowers. Yeah, the ladies who plucked the red flowers at the window or whatever it was, that one, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Terrific story, terrific yeah, story. Yeah, beautiful story. Um, and I'm thinking, wow, I would have voted for that, except it's too late now. <laughs> well, actually, there's a solution, Gary. I have a solution for you. What's Why that? don't you join last, not if you're the last short story on Earth? You can read along with all of us. Yeah, well, you you work that out with Liza because I won't be reviewing anything for Locus while I'm doing that. Oh, <laughs> uh, you're probably right. But yeah, these these are the other yeah, things. I, there is one actually category to flick back to the Hugo's for a second before we begin to wind up because we're actually over our hour now. Uh -huh. Is I'm not really quite sure what to do about the um, best semi prosine category. I have to think about what's actually eligible now under the new well, rules. I was going to ask you that because I looked on the ballot and the way it's described on the ballot doesn't make it clear that Locus is excluded from it. But Locus is excluded from it. But Locus is excluded from it. We all know that. But now, why? Now, now, okay. I don't understand. Is, is it, it's, it's money, wasn't that? the, the um... No, it's a semi-prozine pays its contributors as a non-professional zine. I guess there, what I was told was that having a paid staff Yes. Qualifies you, but that's not listed on the ballot as a, as a, as a qualification. Isn't it? See, I've only been doing this online. So I'm now going to no, – because I, I completely think I'm going to Lone Star 3, uh, LoneStarCon3.org slash Hugo-Awards, and I'm firing uh -huh. up my ballot. Uh, here we go. Any generally available non-professional publication devoted to SF or F, which by the close of uh, 2012 had published four issues or equivalent, and paid its computer, computers and was uh, – sorry, paid its contributors and or staff in other than copies of the publication and was generally unavailable for paid purchase. That seems to that say that Locus like is available. to me. No, I, I think I, it's going to be the definition of non-professional is, is the kicker. Somewhere they're going to define non-professional in the Hugo rules, and it'll be um, money. I'll bet well, 
we need Cheryl and Kevin Stanley, our legal consultants, to let us know what this actually means and what the intent of the motion was when it was passed. We could do that. We haven't sp- actually we haven't haven't spoken to our Cheryl in, in, in quite some time, so yeah, that might be something to do. Uh huh. Yeah. But when we get down to those categories, there are always things. They're, they're the categories that I look at. And there, there's the best. Yep. Let's face it; it's the best movie category. It's the best dramatic presentation, long form. But, but there aren't any Broadway plays that are ever nominated for that. So it's the best movie award. Yeah. And then you start with, well, okay, Prometheus wasn't that bad, and I just almost never nominate in those categories. <laughs> I just can I just I mean, it, okay. There are a few categories that I used to skip completely. I, I, I skipped the graphic story for quite some time, though now I vote in it and I got some quite clear uh-huh. thoughts on it. And I also used to um, skip uh, both of the uh, fan awards and both of the drama awards, right? Uh-huh. But I have changed my feelings on this, and I, I now am nominating in many of those categories that I had not previously done so um, because I've made a point of learning about them a bit more. Still not so much reading about um, uh, or following the drama ones. I'm just not not engaged by the whole thing. No, and uh, the, the, they they seem to be always embarrassments. I mean, it seems to me that if you that, that, that's something you're very proud of being in this community. And this community is giving an award to let's say Steven Spielberg or to Joss Whedon, and they're never there. And they don't care if they've got the award or not, and they're uh, and, and you're almost embarrassing yourself. Years ago, I was at an organization well, no, called you, Popular Culture Association, which still has an okay. annual convention and we decided one year to give the popular no, no, culture chief award to mary tyler moore no, no she's fine she's watching tv she's the height of the mary tyler moore show a sitcom in, in, here in the united states and it was clear that the only purpose of giving that award was to see if we could get mary tyler moore to show up at the committee <laughs> or she did not well that happens you know that happens well That's the next year they gave out the award again but they checked with the, whoever won it did not follow me i don't know who it was they checked with whoever it was that uh that would be willing to come to this convention, which I think that year was in Cincinnati or something. Mm-hmm. And, and that person showed up, and that person got the Popular Culture Achievement Award for that year, after which it became known informally among us members as the famous person who shows up award. <laughs> and there's always a bunch of those. They're a, a common thing throughout the world. So I'm just looking at the, at the, the latest iteration of the World Science Fiction Society convention, Constitution that's online. Though it does say 20.09.10, so maybe that's not a good guide. I think it's been amended. I don't know. We'll wait to hear from our experts to clarify uh, the fate of of others. But um, Gary, we have waffled, we have rambled, and we've got past the standard Charles Tan proposed unit of Kutstreet measurement, the the hour. So it might be time to wind up. We can wind up, and anybody who feels we should, anybody who feels like we're seven or eight minutes over, feel free to not listen to those seven or eight minutes. See, we should have said that seven or eight minutes ago, though. Should have said that, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, on that cheery note, I think we're going to try and find some guests sometime soon. But Mm -hmm. um, it is, as always, a pleasure to to, to have spent some time chatting with you. And I will look to see you next time on the Cood Street Podcast. Next week at the same time, same station. Same bat time, same bat channel.